Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews to explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. My name is Dr. Kara King, and I am your host. Hi, Team Unscrubbed. Welcome home. The winter chill has finally arrived here in Cleveland with even a bit of snow last week. Our COVID numbers have finally peaked and plateaued here at the Cleveland Clinic, but we still had to extend the cancellation of all elective cases through January 30th because of staff and bed shortages. I know a lot of you all are feeling the same pressures, and I'm keeping everyone in my thoughts during these really stressful times. Now, I do want to mention that registration for our annual SGS meeting is up and running with early bird pricing ending on January 15th. So please take a moment and register now so I can see all of your faces in San Antonio in just a few months. Now, today on Unscrubbed, I am really excited to share part two of Dr. Kelly Wright's interview. Now, make sure you listen to part one if you haven't listened yet. She will rock your world with her thoughts around gender bias and the importance of self-advocacy. Today on part two, Kelly is going to discuss the power of social media and how to set boundaries with technology, including our email and the ever-expanding virtual world, as well as offer pro tips on how to capitalize on telehealth to optimize patient care. We hope you enjoy. All right, I want to move into the space of social media, where again, you own this space. You just pump me up here so much. And you're the epitome of a hashtag influencer all the way. Tell me this, Kelly, right? I keep calling you full name because it feels right. So tell me, Kelly, how do you balance like your wicked busy clinical practice? You're really prolific in regard to all of your research endeavors. How do you build social media into your daily routine? Because you are there. Like anytime I want to know what's going on in the world, I just at Migs Runner it and I see what's <laughs> happening. How do you do it? I think, yeah, there's a, um, I have to give credit to Neil Shaw, who is OBGYN at Beth Israel, who was one of my junior residents. And he really taught me how to use social media, or at least explained <laughs> it to his, you know, old chief, how, what these different platforms were for, you know, 10 years ago. So he told me Facebook is for your friends, or, you know, at least it used to be. Twitter is for people you don't know. Twitter is what you want to you know, put out into the public. And so I really um, just very slowly started growing this professional Twitter presence that, um, okay, what did I want to talk about? Well, I kind of just want to talk about the things I'm interested in. So, you know, gender bias, industry, um, surgical excellence, MIGS, you know, what we're doing and the forefront of research with endometriosis. And then, you know, learning how to optimize the use. So using hashtags that patients are looking for, using hashtags that other physicians are looking for. And then also finding out that Twitter is a great way to disseminate your research. So I think there is even studies showing that, you know, when a study is posted on Twitter, it gets so many more, you know, views, uh, looks than a study that just comes out in a journal. I think that's really powerful. So we can really use it in a way that helps enrich you know, each other. I find it enriching really to engage with other physicians on Twitter. I learn a lot. I think it's great to make those partnerships. And, you know, every time somebody has a question about, you know, tracking or voiding, it's like, oh, we wrote a paper about that. Oh, we wrote a paper about that. And, you, you know, post that yes. your literature and you really, you know, get your 
division's name out there and increase your division's reputation. So at the last SGS, you know, Jocelyn Fitzgerald, who's a wonderful ginfluencer, a Eurogyne at McGee, and myself had a discussion about, you know, do you focus your social media outreach to patients or do you focus it more towards, you know, physician facing? I think there's, you know, great points for doing both. But I feel like my Twitter outreach is maybe a little more geared towards other physicians, you know, like engaging with colleagues. And I love it when patients, you know, find the information. I think that's great. But I'm not necessarily uh, engaging directly with patients. I think that helps me keep some boundaries in the social media because you don't want to blur that line of like providing clinical care, you know, through social media. You definitely don't want to do that. But you can certainly guide patients in the right direction just by engaging with other physicians. I do have, you know, limits set on my phone. All social media is limited to, I think it's two hours a day. I, I barely reach the time limit. And I, you know, won't log in, of course, when I'm engaged in work, you know, like clinic, OR, of course, uh, I'm scrubbed in. I would not be online during that time. <laughs> Um, but you know, there's times in our day where there's downtime, you know, there's OR turnover, there's a, you know, a patient didn't show up and you just, you know, had a thought that you want to put out to the world. So there, there are times to check it. I also, you know, pretty much put my phone on, you know, do not disturb after 9 PM. I'm kind of like, you know, time to wrap it up and go to bed. Uh, I, I think it's really important that to use it and like, be excited about it when you're using it and also have like really clear limits for how much you're going to use and when you're going to use it. So important. And I do want to make a note that I'm so happy I'm on Easter standard time because that means I get you actually to midnight because if, if we are in the same time frame, I would never talk to you because I only talk to you between nine and midnight, just so you know. You're the only person I'll text after like 8 p.m. <laughs> Even my colleagues, like, I'll I'll wake up in the morning and there's, like, 10 text messages that all came in after 9. And I'm like, oh, sorry, y'all. Like, I missed this, you know. But I also think that limited use, like, we know not to expect each other after certain hours. Um, And so if we really need something from each other, like, it's got to be during the day. Um, And I love that, you know, my department, my division kind of just has that understanding of, of boundaries. Like you're not going to get an urgent email at 10 o'clock. There's no such thing as an urgent email, you know, yeah. and that we don't expect people to like respond to things outside of, of daytime hours. We have our clinical responsibilities, right? That's, a, that's enough. Yeah. Um, so you can't be on for everything all the time. But you're right. Now that everything is in our pocket, it is, it feels like you can't get away sometimes. And, you know, I'm lucky here at the clinic where I have a work phone and I have a personal phone and a lot of people put those together, but I'm like, no, like I like having a work phone because then I can put it away and shut it down sometimes and and, and unplug. And, you know, with our new outlook, well, maybe this isn't new. This has probably been there forever, but you can time your emails going out. And so, right. And so we've actually talked about this amongst some of my colleagues in my hallway in that maybe we should be timing our emails to go out like at 7 a.m. or, you know, within working hours, because some, like, I'll be honest, I do all my working from nine to midnight. That's when I have space. 
But when I email out at midnight, people feel like they have to respond. And I don't want that. That's just my time. So maybe even having little things like that where you're timing emails to go out within working hours, that could maybe change culture too. I think that, yes, that's huge. And what made me learn about that and want to start using it was I realized that the people who worked in our clinic had their work emails on their phone and were getting notifications after hours of emails coming in, you know, just like you, Oh, I'm working on a Saturday and just catching up on emails and just sending stuff out. I said, why do you guys, you know, get those notifications? Why do you have the email on your phone? And it's because our clinic is also part of a infertility clinic and you know they have they see have to see patients seven days a week yeah so if they need at the last minute to come in for you know a cycle they get the notification so that made me stop sending things after hours so usually i'll i'll time any email at night or on the weekend goes out you know like at 7 a.m on monday i also feel like if people are there at their inbox, they're more likely to respond. And and I definitely think it's a great idea to separate like your work phone and your personal phone. Unfortunately, I did not do that and I have them all integrated. So the way that I manage that is for many years, I've had all my notifications turned off, you know, whether it's personal email, social media, Probably at least for like five years, I've had all the notifications turned off except for calls or texts because um, that's all I really need to know about. You know, anything else can be dealt with when I'm sitting down looking at it. And then, you know, we talked about recently how I took my work email off my phone and I realized I was, you know, maybe between OR cases or in the hallway, like opening the app reading the emails, but then I would never respond from my phone. I always waited till I got to a computer just because I feel like it was easier to type what I wanted from a computer. And then I realized, well, if I'm not actually acting on any of these emails, why am I reading them? I'm just doubling the work that I'm doing. I'm increasing my mental strain and maybe I'm getting stressed out about something I can't respond to until I get to a computer. So I took it off, yeah, probably about six months ago. I, I mean, I haven't missed anything. Emails aren't urgent, and people know how to get in touch with me if they need me for something. So that's been, that's been really nice. So I encourage everybody to you know, turn off all of your notifications for everything, and also you know, take anything off your phone that you're not going to you know, act on it on your phone. That resonates so deeply with me. I mean, I scroll through emails, check them, but I just you said like you said I don't actually respond to them, and then I end up missing them because then when I sit down, <laughs> they've already been like quote unquote read, and I haven't actually processed. And so that's ingenious. I need to stop checking on my phone until I'm ready to respond. You're exactly right. Right. I think for a while I was like trying to mark them unread so I would like remember to do them later, and then I was accidentally like deleting some, <laughs> and then I couldn't find out where they went, and I was like, oh my god. So it just <laughs> takes a layer of, of stress out of my day if I don't do that. I think um, something I've also talked a lot about, you know, with my work partner, Matthew Seedoff, is task switching and how when we go from task to task to task, you know, it requires so much inner, mental energy and like so much time before we're truly engaged in the next task. So I'll think about like, 
unscrubbing from the OR. Okay, I pick up my phone. I look at my work emails real quick. I check Twitter real quick. Okay, oh, I got to do my op note. I got to call the family. You know, if I just like focus on finishing what I'm doing, leave my phone alone until I've really completed the entire OR encounter, I'm just much more efficient during my day. And I, when I finish my day, I'm actually done. You know, I'm not bringing that stuff home. I'm not perfect at it. You know, sometimes I'm like, I just need to respond to emails right now. But when I can do it, I just, I just feel so much more efficient, so much better about my day. I think those words are so important right now, especially, again, during these COVID times when virtual is the space that we're all living. I mean, sometimes I, I feel like people think that virtual meetings aren't really that time intensive because you're not actually traveling anywhere, right? Or these like these virtual meetings at night, these virtual meetings on the weekend, we're just always accessible. So I, I think still valuing your time is really crucial. Definitely. And with virtual meetings, right? Like everything that used to be an email is now a virtual meeting. So it's like, yes. if you're, if you set a virtual meeting, you know, ask if it could be a phone call instead, ask if that phone call could be a, an email, ask if that email could just be a text message. You know, <laughs> It's just like, try and <laughs> minimize all the things. So as a, you know, division director, I don't like to make a ton of you know, meetings for us, because I feel like sometimes just a text message chain is, is going to be perfectly adequate. De-escalate the request. De-escalate. I really love that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. But there's studies on this. Like the, I mean, I, Adam Grant, right. I don't know if, yes, you, if you yes, read yes. Think Again. So I'm almost finished with his book, but he talks, there's such interesting research coming out about the mental capacity of like a virtual meeting with screens on versus virtual meeting without screens on versus just like a phone call now that feels like you can't even do that anymore because you have to have virtual, like there's mental capacity that goes into this, right? Oh, definitely. We, so, you know, we've switched over our clinic, you know, mostly to telemedicine now, right? And then occasionally I just want to call a patient on the phone and I'll call and be like, can we just talk on the phone? You know, <laughs> I think we can convey the same information through the phone that, that I could see through the video, especially if our connection's not great. So you're totally right. There's a uh, comfort sometimes in just being able to, to talk to somebody, you know, on the phone with our old technology. Exactly. Except I am annoying with you, Kelly, that I want to send you audio messages nonstop now. I'm obsessed with audio messages. I can't stop. I imagine you like running home because I know you, you know, walk and run to work, you know, running home and holding your phone up and dictating your little message and then sending it. I mean, that's a very efficient way to send a text message. (laughs) And I always enjoy hearing your voice. So it makes me happy. You're exactly right. I am probably running. I have the New York, I have the New York City Marathon, Kelly, in four weeks. Right. I was thinking about that. It's a problem. You got this. (laughs) What number is it for you? What number marathon? Eleven. <gasps> mm. It's my slowest digits. one. It's the slowest one, though, man. I am like, I ran eighteen this weekend. It was so slow, but I did it, and I didn't hurt. So hey, it's okay, hey, right? That's all that matters. Self-preservation. Once you get to to forty, right? So just uh, exactly. stay staying healthy wins the game. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, I want to transition into this area of telehealth. Like you guys are killing it at Cedars with your telehealth platform. And I'm wondering, yeah. can you talk to us about how you built this and what's going well and how maybe other places can optimize this? 
Yeah, I mean, tele, telemedicine has been uh, really a game changer for us. And it's, you know, it's made us more efficient. We've been able to see more patients. And it's also given us more flexibility in our schedules. So, you know, back in March 2020, Los Angeles, I mean, you know, looking at New York was, we were really preparing for for a big surge, which, you know, didn't really come until later. But at the beginning, uh, all the division leaders, we kind of sat down and said, what are we going to do with our clinics? And our clinic is small. Our waiting room is like the size of a closet. There's no way to, to like social distance. <laughs> <laughs> LA, man. LA, you guys are living tight over there. I know, I know. right? Like real estate, right? So... So we talked about it and we're like, okay, well, what can we do to, to promote safety for us and the patients? And we're like, well, okay, so post-op visits, you know, which were a frequent visit for us, those are bundled into their, you know, global fee anyway for surgery. So those aren't paid visits. So let's just switch all of those to the phone right now. And if they have issues, they can send us pictures through the portal and we can bring in people that we, that, you know, we're really worried about. And then once we did that, we said, okay, you know, that'll space out the new consult so that there's not as many people in the waiting room. I think shortly afterwards, maybe like two or three weeks later, and CMS, you know, changed the rules and said, we're going to now pay for virtual visits, including, you know, telephone visits. So we said, okay, well, if that's the case, why don't we just switch all of our consults to these virtual visits? The truth is, you know, we see a lot of endometriosis patients, a lot of patients who have pelvic pain, and to be honest, we weren't really examining these patients for the most part in the office. Almost all these patients were coming to us with imaging, exams. You know, they didn't need their 10th exam for us to know that they had pelvic pain. They just needed surgery. So our practice already, when even when patients were coming in, was we weren't really doing a ton of exams, especially non-invasive exams. So we switched all these new consults over to virtual, started being really successful. We noticed we were able to, you know, fit more patients in. Patients really seemed to respect the visit length. So it'd be like, okay, your visit's 30 minutes. Like, here's, tell me all of this. Then here's all the information I'm going to give you. And here's all the instructions I'm going to send to you through the portal. And our portal became more robust as time went on as well. I would say we see about 80% of our patients virtually now. And, then, and we've started to look at this from a, you know, a study perspective, like, okay, well, is this the right thing to do? Are patients happy with this? Would they rather be in person? And when we looked at our patient satisfaction data, we showed that the patients were actually as satisfied or even maybe a little bit more satisfied with their virtual visits compared to the patients who were coming in person. I think it actually makes a lot of sense. If you're seeing a patient in GYN clinic, it's kind of a, you know, anxiety provoking place. You never know, like, am I getting an invasive exam or biopsy or procedure? Is it going to hurt? And just to be able to talk to somebody through a virtual platform, they know they're not getting an exam. All we're doing is talking. It really improved our history taking skills. You have to be very, you know, specific about what causes pain, what doesn't. I feel like the patients could really be relaxed and take in the information, you know, rather than worrying about if they were going to have a painful exam or procedure. So I feel like, especially for specialty referral services, procedural services, it makes a lot of sense to start with a virtual visit. Then we could triage the patients that needed to come in and have an exam or a procedure. And then the rest could stay at home and just go forward right with surgery. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been great. I hope we get to keep doing it forever because if our patients are happy 
and we're happy, then there's no reason to stop. You know, like I mentioned, our clinic was really small. We're always plagued by space issues. Well, because we switched so much of our clinic to virtual, now each of us as clinicians are able to do our virtual visits from home one day a week. And that's opening up the clinic to more space for the other clinicians. So I think the business managers are happy too. You know, so far it, it just seems to be really working out. I love this. I, I mean, I, I agree. I think this has really changed the way medicine feels for both sides, patients and clinicians. And I think it, like for me, for example, I like to start my clinics pretty early, like 6.30 a.m. And patients like that because it's before work. But now I don't, I don't yeah. have to rely on like front staff being there or MAs being there or like the parking people helping with helping them with valet because it's all right. virtual, right? So it's so nice. Yeah. My question for you, I have so many questions. Your current model is, is so efficient. I'm just wondering, in regard to like pelvic exams, how do you suss out virtually this space of like vulvodynia or spastic pelvic floor? You know how there's some patients who genuinely have a ton of pelvic floor dysfunction or central sensitization? I worry that surgery could actually spike their pain after. How do you differentiate that population from patients who ju do just need surgery? Sure. I mean, I think for us, patients are coming to us already with a pretty significant workup, right? I mean, almost yeah. all of them have seen a general GYN. Almost all of them have imaging of some kind. We really try to be very specific about does it hurt when, when you have this? Does it hurt when you do this? When you had an exam, what, what did it feel like? You know, and if we, if it's OBGYNs who we work with, oftentimes they're sending us the exams too. So some of those finer things, you're exactly right. You can't find out um, just through talking and you do need to do an exam. But I found like so many times we're able to differentiate that just through discussion and then I say, okay, well, I'm going to refer you to the pelvic floor physical therapist. You know, they're going to do a comprehensive exam too. <laughs> and so they can give me feedback on if, if I'm off track. So I think really getting that information and then trying to limit the, you know, exams for the patient, especially somebody with, you know, the high tone pelvic floor dysfunction, uh, vulvodynia, gosh, they've had so many exams. I feel like every single one makes it worse. And at some point the exams just aren't useful anymore because everything that you, you know, touch or examine provokes pain significantly. Absolutely. So we probably bring in about 10% of patients for an exam or procedure or, you know, who need either like pre-op preparation, uh, an exam to really determine what's going on. Uh, also with prolapse patients, I feel like an exam is, you know, not required there. So I also want to bring up how you said that you triage patients for if they need to come in or not. And I think that's so important too, because then when you, if you do need to bring them in, you can align everything, right? Like if they need that MRI or they need that imaging or they need to see, you know, colorectal surgery or somebody else, you can make it all on one day, which makes so much sense for your patient. Absolutely. I think it, you know, reduces that first visit anxiety. And then when they do come in, they know exactly what they're getting. So, okay, you're coming in, we're doing an exam, a PAP, an EMB, and getting your blood count today. And that has expanded the region, you know, in which we can care for patients too. I mean, LA is huge. Some patients would drive three or four hours, even still within the county to come to their appointment because the traffic can be so bad. And now we're saying like, you don't have to come in until you 
your day of surgery or like we'll only bring you in this one time and uh and then the rest you get to be at home i think it's super convenient we've been seeing patients from other parts of the state and then patients who have established care already within our system able to see in different states i saw a patient in the uk and in africa <laughs> who again had already established care in our system so we were able to you know see them but they didn't have to come back for those visits right they could yeah. be with their families you know it's during the pandemic so they're able to be more mobile and then we can make a plan for when they need to come in now it's fantastic i'm also obsessed with virtual visits and one one thing that we're working through at the clinic and i'm curious how you guys are handling this is just like initial intake you know, like in the clinic when they come in and the MA or whoever's assisting you may get X, Y, and Z history. Do you have anyone reach out to your patients beforehand for any of that intake? We were doing this. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, it was actually a really great process. So the nurses would call the patient ahead of time, would do the intake, update the meds, the history, and confirm, you know, the time and make sure they didn't have any trouble with the platform. I think the nice thing about our portal as well is the patients could also make updates themselves. They could tell me which meds to discontinue, update their pharmacy. So there were a lot of things they could do on their end too. I think the issue, you know, even, even in virtual visits, short staffing affects those. And so when our, our staff is not as robust, the nurses are not able to make those calls ahead of time. But I think it's, I think it's a good practice, and I do like the fact that the patients can review everything themselves and also update it that way. Yeah, it makes them really invested in their care as well, and they can see, you know, what they're doing is directly impacting their medical record. I'm sure that feels good from an, from an autonomy standpoint for the patient, too. Totally. I think there's been a lot of, you know, discussion about the automatic release of records to the patients and different opinions on how physicians feel about that. I, I really like it. I want them to be able to read our visit note when we're done because I put a lot of the counseling in the visit note and maybe they didn't catch all those words. And so I like that they're able to read that. I like that they're able to see their operative note when they get home. They don't, you know, patients don't remember anything in the recovery room. So I tell them, I'll send you with your pictures and please log into the portal and look at your op note later so you have all the details. That really enhances the you know virtual visit process as well because if they have all the information, they get their path report when it comes out, they have their op note, they have their photos, it makes our post-op visit very streamlined. And I'm really just then assessing for any problems, you know, seeing if they need to come in for any reason, or otherwise telling them, yep, uh, you know, this went great. Can I clarify anything for you? And then they can go on with their lives. So. Love it. And, you know, you're talking about all virtual post-ops. You know, I have not done a vaginal exam on a hysterectomy patient in 10 years, right? And Megan Wasson's group finally published the data, right? I think it was last AAGL where they said it doesn't make a difference. If the patient's asymptomatic, then a vaginal exam doesn't change a darn thing. And that had made me so happy to have it actually in writing, <laughs> right? Me too. I mean, I think it was, you know, one of my attendees in residency was like, we tell people not to put anything in the vagina after hysterectomy. Why would we put a speculum in? We're actually putting tension on the sutures. So yes. that's another thing we just triage that if patients have bleeding, you know, past a certain time frame, then yeah, I'll bring them in and they need an exam. But otherwise, they can just move on with their lives and avoid, uh, you know, a 
time intensive in person visit. Absolutely. No one's ever fought me over that. No one's ever begged for an exam ever. <laughs> there was um, from the general surgery literature, a uh, randomized controlled trial I thought was really interesting for patients who underwent laparoscopic api or cholecystectomy were randomized to virtual post-ops or in-person post-ops. And they found that the virtual post-ops addressed like a lot of barriers to care, like coming back in when you're recovering from a surgery. And there was no difference in like patient satisfaction or complications. So I think it shows that we can just follow up with patients in this very easy way. And we should, you know, continue that, you know, whether or not wherever have to go back to all in-person visits. So I love it. You know, personal anecdote, I've had three babies and I have never gone to a postpartum visit in my entire life. I couldn't make it. I've got stuff to do, but, but I think that if it was virtual, maybe I would have called in. So, you know, I, I agree. Virtual visits are really important. I think it makes a lot of sense for postpartum. How are you supposed to, you know, drag your newborn baby with your laparotomy incision, you know, into the doctor's office like a week later Send the patients home with a blood pressure cuff and have them log on, you know, at like postpartum day four and seven. I mean, think about the amount of monitoring we could do remotely and how that would improve maternal health outcomes if we could just do their visits virtually. Absolutely. And they won't be labeled as no-shows like I was. Like, come on, we're doing the best we can. (laughs) You're one of those, quote, non-compliant patients, you know, but really it's just like we made everything so incredibly inconvenient for people to actually come back to their visits that even a physician is not going to go to their visit. That's what I'm saying. If I can't do it, how we expect someone who doesn't have, you know, transportation or childcare for the other kids to do it? It's not going to happen. By the time yeah, you get to number three, what are you supposed to do with the other kids too? You know, bring them along or gosh. <laughs> you understand. You understand, Kelly. That's true. <laughs> All right, friend. I think that's all the time we have today. I I so appreciate your time this afternoon. And do you have any final comments that you want to tell our avid listeners? <laughs> Keep doing good work. Uh, keep advocating for women's health, women's pay, women's surgeons, and making it more convenient for people to get access to care. I think, and let's keep pushing our national organizations to advocate for that. Steady, unrelenting pressure. That's right. <laughs> Straight from this ginfluencer's mouth, baby. That's right. <laughs> Well, thank you, Kelly. I can't wait to see you at uh, SGS this coming spring. Uh, actually, this winter, the SGS winter postgrad course this December. Uh, I'll see you uh, in La Jolla. Yeah, looking forward to your excellent fibroid course. Uh, sounds like a great interactive you know, way to teach. So I'm excited to be a part of that. Thanks, Kelly. All right, friend. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.